0: Today we want to talk a little bit about a company that Liat and I both run and are super passionate about Study Notes AVA, also known as SNABA. Um, we have been or Liat started this what, two years ago? Yeah, a little over two years ago. And I joined on board and we both teach the collective and we love it. And summer collective opens on June 1st. And right now we have an early bird special till May 1st. If you use coupon code early AF and get $75 off. Leah, what is the collective? Tell everyone.
1: The collective is the best fucking time of your life when it comes to studying. Studying's usually super aversive. Not with the bitches, I'll tell you that. We break down everything on the task list, everything you need to know for the test from start to finish. If you're scared where to start, you don't know where to start, you don't know how to take your notes, you can't apply this stuff to your everyday life, join the collective. I promise you will not regret it. You could find us on Instagram at Study Notes ABA, on Facebook at Study Notes ABA, or you can check out what we have to offer on our website at StudyNotesABA.com. Hope to see you there.
0: It's behavior, bitches.
1: Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. And it is episode 47. Heads up, our rhyme is going to suck ass today. 47. Locked
0: out of heaven. Awesome rhymes with out.
1: Bevan, Chevin, Kevin. 11 11 um Yevin lucky number 11 okay I yeah, don't even sorry. know what
0: we're going to do when we're in the hundreds holy crap Yeah
1: All right so today's episode I am so super pumped for I feel like I have been this is I this this overrides the hostage negotiator thing for me because this is just like fascinating Um Casey why don't you give us an intro of our guest today I'm so excited. I could barely keep it in my pants.
0: So please go. Yeah, We've recorded 47 podcasts. I've never seen her like this. She's so nervous. She, and she doesn't get nervous. She's like, I'm like shaking. I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Okay? We do have a really um, amazing guest today. And it's going to be, you know, um, a pretty great story that he's coming on to tell. So we're very, very lucky that he is here. Um. So his name is Bruce Lisker. Um, At age 17, he was wrongly arrested, tried, and convicted for the March 10th, 1983 murder of his mother, Dorca. She was 66. Um, He served more than 26 years of a 16 years to life sentence in California prisons. Lisker's case has been featured in numerous Los Angeles Times articles, the first of which earned its authors, investigative reporters, Matt looks like late, and Scott Glover, the prestigious Haywood Brown Award on behalf of the Times. The case was also featured in an hour-long episode of the CBS News television program, 48 Hours Mysteries, entitled The Whole Truth. That was in 2010, hosted by correspondent Aaron Moriarty, as well as the documentary film Survivor's Guide to Prison, um, which I have been watching and it's amazing. It's on Netflix. So welcome to the show, Bruce, and thank you Being
2: here, thanks guys. Good to be here.
0: Okay, I'm like freaking out
1: right now because I watch a lot of Dateline and anything prison related at all. And to be able to talk to you, first of all, I'm so sorry what like that is completely fucked up what you went through in terms of like the justice system and losing that many years of your life. So I'm so sorry that like this is at your expense that we're talking about this. Um, I'm fascinated about the, you know, the criminal justice system in general and prisons. I have this like, I've always like, I want to talk to someone who's been in prison and you have. And you know, I I just, I'm so excited. Um, The behavioral principles we will cover today are punishment, adaptation, ontogeny, behavior change, motivating operations, discriminative stimuli, STPs, consequences, negative reinforcement, response generalization, stimulus generalization, token economies. And I'm sure there will be so much more because, as you know, behavior is everywhere and there is lots of behavior and different things going on in the prison system. So, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on. Did we miss anything in the short little bio we did about you?
2: No, I think you, I think you pretty much uh, covered the high points. Yeah, sounds good. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for coming on. I'm I'm so happy um, Harry Drucker made the introduction
0: to yep. you. Shout out, Harry. Yeah, shout, shout out me. to Harry.
2: Friend. Hesby Street. That was our element. <laughs> yeah,
1: elementary. Hesby. yeah Hesby, Hesby Elementary. Right. All right. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what your childhood was like, anything <sighs> along those lines?
2: Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I was... Um... I was adopted at uh, two days of age and um, by Robert and Dorka Lisker, and they're my adopted parents, the only parents that I knew for most of my life. And uh, we settled in Sherman Oaks and right around the corner from Hesby Street School and, and uh, meeting Harry Drucker, fine man, great guy, and uh, glad we got back in touch since I've come home. And um, yeah, things were things were pretty good. Quiet little bedroom community. Everything looked like it was um, wonderful. And you know, then I guess probably around third grade, I, I uh, they realized I was hyperactive or whatever they call it nowadays, ADHD. And uh, you know, it was a little trouble in school, but uh, you know, got tutors and and tried to do our best with it and eventually went to some private schools and uh sort of kind of became a bit of a a pothead after a little while as uh early uh, probably about 11 12 13 in those years experimenting with pot and getting into it uh of heavily experimenting with some other stuff and a little bit of trouble and then eventually moved out and uh, into my own apartment was moved out and um then, as you know, Wikipedia can, can attest. <laughs> kind of if it's an,
1: on, if it's on Wikipedia.
2: And <laughs> you know, unusual developments befell me. So, yeah, my mom was uh, killed by somebody that I'd uh, murdered by somebody that I met in a in a drug rehab. Um, Where we he was never uh, tried or anything, but we're, it's obvious that he he committed the crime, and uh, I was uh, arrested for the crime. By LAPD and this was assigned to an officer who uh, it was one of his first, if not his first homicide case and somebody who uh, was willing to cut corners and uh, shoot from the hip. And he missed and he got me. And so my mother's murder went unsolved for until now. I mean, it's officially still unsolved, but, you know, we figured it out and, uh, you know, and and proved it essentially to the courts.
1: Um, Is this person still walking the streets?
2: No, no, he's uh, which one? The detective or the uh,
1: No, the the murderer.
2: No, he committed suicide in 1996. Um, alcohol and heroin. And, and probably he, guilt. And, he, and yeah, you know, he had a he had a really messed up life. He was you know, I mean like like anyone, you know, we all start off innocent, you know, and it's like, you know, things happen and 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 you know, due to a lot of stuff that happened in his life, he was he was maladjusted. He was, he was pretty messed up, a lot of dysfunction. And he, you know, reached a point in his life where he thought that he could solve things with violence and threats. And so that was essentially what he was about. And, um, yeah. And so, yeah, that, uh, that sort of pretty much, you know, put me off on a tangent that, you know, became my life arc for, uh, for, you know, 26 years, five months, three days. And then, you know, through to the present, I mean, you never get over something like that. You just sort of adapt and, and, uh,
1: what pisses me off the most. And I'm not trying to add to being pissed off here is like, you lost your mother and like, then here you are being accused of something. So like, it's like, that's bad enough losing a parent. And then it's like, also to just like, as if it's not bad enough being locked up, but it's like, Oh, Hey, when a normal person's already depressed enough, morning, it's like you're now being locked up for that. That's literally a nightmare.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and I mean, yeah. And to make matters worse, like when I was arrested and wrongly accused and then thrown into, you know, Silmar Juvenile Hall, um, I saw a psych came and saw me the next morning. A psychiatrist came and saw me the next morning and opened up the interview with, So, how do you feel about being here at Silmar Juvenile Hall? And I was like, fucking kidding me. You know, leave a gate open and I'll, I'll let you know how I feel about being here. My mom's dead. I'm, you know, this detective yesterday said I did it. I don't know if it was because of that comment. I can't see how it would be. They, to shut me up, I think, to, they put me on mellaril, which is a chemical cousin of Thorazine. And uh, I was pretty, you know, pretty out of it from that point forward. I was essentially, I was I was a really good prisoner, <laughs>
0: You, know, were you were comatose. were
2: drug. nearly comatose, so I didn't get a chance to grieve um, for a long time. I mean, I had, you know, a 24-hour period of shock, you know, which went right into just, you know, high-level inebriation and then just out of it, totally out of it, unable to mount a defense in court, unable to grieve. And then that, you know, went into the transfer of me to the county jail where I was set up with a snitch where I wasn't supposed to be. Because the court had ordered that I stay in juvenile hall and then under the cover of darkness, they kidnapped me and put me in in L.A. County jail.
0: And you were 17 years old and you were the one that found your mom. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. So you came home and had to witness her. Yeah. Stabbed like.
2: Yep. Yep. It was just like I mean, it was it was just a day like any other day. Like I was out job hunting and then I realized I needed to go and and re-repair a repair that I had done in my car. And so I went over to the house, you know, changed anymore work, went over there. And normally she would come out and greet me when I, when I arrived, you know, we had a little dog, little poodle, and it would start barking. And then she would, who is it? And it recognized the sound of my car. And so it would, it would start freaking out to see me. and, And she would come out and, you know, greet me. And she didn't. So eventually I started, you know, looking, I went to the door and then I started looking in windows, figuring, you know, you know, I need to see what's, you know, why isn't she coming to the What's going on? Mm-hmm. And, um, I, first I thought I saw her and then I certainly saw her from the back of the house and just, you know, broke in cause I'd given my key back when I moved out, you know, independence, <laughs> Yeah. you know, and so broke in and found her and she had been attacked. She was, she was dying. She was on the floor, Blood everywhere. It was a horrid scene, just an absolutely horrid scene. And uh, knives still in her back. Uh, but she was alive. And so I called for help and called my dad and, and tended to her as best I could. First aid, you know, direct pressure and stuff like that.
0: Wow. I can't even imagine that. I mean, you called 911, I assume. Called
2: 911. Yeah. called. Well, they didn't have 911. I don't think they had 911. I recall calling zero, but I don't know. Call for help whatever the operator. Yeah. It would date me if it's, if they didn't have 911 yet. So <laughs> <laughs> people are like, they didn't have 911.
1: <laughs> All right. So what was, what was the, the time period in between you seeing this like terrible thing, right? Which I guess we would call that, um, inner response time, maybe in between that. And from you seeing that to the process of, Oh, I'm assuming you were like highly questioned, right? They probably were questioning you, and then, like, how long till you were in prison, turned jail? I mean jail turned prison
2: yeah, so um so I called for help, and then I was you know waiting with my mom and then and then the paramedics and the police arrived, and uh they started questioning me, and I was just freaking the fuck out. I couldn't you know hold it together, and so I was hysterical and I was just screaming and crying, and I was. At one point, screaming at the at the paramedics to get her to the hospital, you know, because she was mortally wounded, she was gonna, you know, she needed help, and and so the police, uh, for that reason or because I kept pacing around outside, I'm not sure, I don't know, whatever they said, um, they took me down to the ground and they put me in handcuffs, and from that moment on, I never again saw freedom.
0: I mean, this story could not get worse. Like,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean to find what I did and then to be so traumatized and call for help. And when help arrives, they fucking arrest you. It's crazy. You know, it's like, I was a boy scout, you know, when I grew up and, you know, and and I was trained, it was drummed in, you know, when the shit hits the fan, you call for help. You call the police and you put your full trust in them your full, your full faith in them. And, and yeah, I had, you know, some different, different reports from my pot smoking friends, when I, you know, started doing that and it's, you know, you weren't to trust police, but you know, But your
1: your parents were like prestigious, right? Like, didn't you say your dad was a lawyer and like your,
2: He was, he was a well-respected civil attorney in Hollywood and did elder law, you know, wills and probates and stuff like that. And, and, uh, uh, you know, upstanding guy, Marine, World War II, went off to fight at 16 years of age. Um, the only time I knew that he, widely was when he was older than he actually was so he could join world war ii and he's 16 years old like waiting ashore with a fucking rifle above his head at you know one of the most harrowing battles he's a marine and uh came home and uh after the war and and uh, went to law school at night when he was working a day job i mean inconceivable stuff you know and and my mom was a film negative cutter um you know, she was the one that everybody brought their difficult, you know, film to if there was a problem or something. Worked at Technicolor in Hollywood, and that's where they met. And oh. then, yeah, yeah, pillars of the community. You
0: know, is your dad still alive?
2: No, he passed in nineteen
1: ninety-five. Were you in prison when he passed away?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I was. I've been in prison. I was in prison from nineteen eighty-three to uh, two thousand nine. So, so. I was in custody when my mom died at three twenty-seven PM that day, and then my dad, twelve years later, um, died, and then my stepmom Joy, who had become like a a second mother to me, uh, she passed twelve years after that in two thousand seven. Um, before and you I, were
1: still in, you were still in until two thousand nine, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so okay, inside. Casey,
1: you're allowed to have goosebumps today. You are allowed I, to I, have
0: goosebumps. I'm not literally a joke. Like, My whole arm just like went into yeah, mm. like I can't imagine like, like you being in custody when your mom yeah. died. Yeah, and dad, and then stepmom.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah.
0: I can't believe it's, you're sitting here right now. Yeah, and, like, I like just want to cry. I'm I want to like, hug you. Me too. I'm like, <laughs> it's insane. I'm so sorry.
2: Like, thank you. Thank
0: you. So we, okay. So we've gotten to this point now where you're in custody um, Mm -hmm. and you're being questioned and all this stuff. And what was the evidence that they had?
2: So when I arrived um, at the house and I, and my mom didn't come out and I initially went to the front door and then I told you that I went around the back and I was looking in windows um so I I from the first window thought I saw my mom and second window definitely saw her and then entered the house through the kitchen window which I had entered when I'd missed curfew uh cuz it was across the house from my parents bedroom <laughs> when I was a kid you yeah. know I knew it was, I knew it as a way to get in so yep. um first thing the detective uh Mansu is his name um the corrupt detective the liar Fuck
1: right? him fuck him I'm pissed yeah. off Yeah,
2: yeah. They, well, it'll piss you off even more to know that he's he retired with full benefits and nothing ever happened to him. So, what?
0: Are you um, kidding me?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So you read the first of the L.A. Times articles that came out May 22nd, 2005. Yeah. That came out, and, like, he read it, and there were witnesses in his department. He was overseeing 65 detectives at the time. He's reading this article, and he throws it in the trash can and is like, fuck this, I don't need to take this. You know, I got my 30 years on, and he retired. Walked away, got his full benefits like nothing ever happened. And cost... You know, a 17-year-old kid, close to 30 years of his fucking life. So um, anyway, so detect- so Monsu says that he went around the back of the house and looked in the windows and, and you can't see in, is what's his claim. You can't see in. It's impossible for Bruce to have seen his mom inside the house. And basically what happened is I had long hair. And I was a pothead. I look like it. I looked the part and cops back then, particularly nowadays there's, there's more nuance, but back then they tended to put you in one, three, one of three co- categories when they encountered you. One, you're another cop, which I wasn't. Two, you're a clueless citizen, which I wasn't a clueless citizen because I looked more like a scumbag category three because I had long hair. And, and, and I think that he reasoned, fuck this kid, you know, the spoiled little brat with these great parents. And he, look at him, he's a little, you know, long-haired. Mm-hmm. And so he's he was looking for ways to see if something that I told him was a lie and to make it a lie. And so he said, I couldn't see in. Um, and that allegation carried the it's day. It's also
1: different when it's your own house. Like, when you grew up in a house for years, like, you know how to get, like, see, think, do, like, you know every detail of a house, right? That's, so,
2: like, that's absolutely like, true. Like that, to me, yeah.
1: I would know if I go up to my parents' house now and it's locked, like I would know exactly which way to get in.
2: Yeah. You know how to get in. You know what I things- stuck out
1: the window to like meet up with boys for years. Like
2: Yeah. And
0: honestly, who cares if you didn't see her or not? She didn't come out and you were concerned, so you got into your house. Like
2: yeah. who the fuck I fact, mean But yeah. the fact was that since you know, so when they when he encountered me, he said, What happened today? And I and start from the moment you got and so I did. And what happened was I, I saw her, I thought I saw her through the first window. I definitely saw her through the second window and that's what prompted me to break in. And so I told him that. And so he was like, how do I like assail this? How do I take this down, take this apart, unpack it, and then say, that was a lie. And if that was a lie, everything's a lie. And that's in fact what the prosecutor a couple of years later actually did say in front of the jury. If he lied about this, he's lying about everything. And here's the picture that detective Monsu took showing his reflection and you can't even see in the house. And so here's so the the lie about that and the simple you know in short form is that in the morning it was overcast as verified by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say that ten times fast um, where <laughs> eighty to hundred percent of the visible sky was covered by clouds when I looked in then by the time the photographer got there in the afternoon it was scattered conditions a lot of that shit had burned off and so you could see like shadows and then he went back for a photo reconstruction like uh, thirteen days later. And it was a totally different situation. It was a bright, sunny day that day. And he testified it was a bright, sunny day, just like in this photograph. And so there's this reflection of him, you know, with his, with his, you know, or this photograph with his reflection in it and purporting to show how I couldn't see in. And that was what was shown to the jury. Well, that was bullshit. That wasn't created, that wasn't taken under similar conditions at all, you know, so.
0: Confounding variables.
2: You know, confounding variables.
1: Well, we're going to be like assholes and throw in like behavior words every now and then, just cool, so that our, our students are tied in.
2: I remembered something about the word ontogeny in it. In it.
1: Yeah, It it's...
2: recapitulates phylogeny, as I recall. Yeah,
1: yeah, phylogeny—like you're born with it. Like it's like.
2: Yeah, ontogeny. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny.
0: Wait, explain that.
2: Yeah, I explain would... that best. I will. It's the theory of recapitulation, also called the biogenic law or embryological parallelism, often expressed using Ernst Haig's phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. It's a historical hypothesis that the development of the embryo of an animal from fertilization to gestation to hatching goes through stages resembling or representing successive adult stages in the evolution of an animal's remote ancestors. And I swear to God, I didn't just read that on Wikipedia. That's out of my memory shut Shut up up. That's
0: good you are good he kind (laughs) of looks like howie mandel yeah he does if you guys want to get a
2: picture (laughs) well he's a bald head he's very similar i'm similarly like germ phobic are you these days yeah
1: oh these days i was gonna say yeah that's that's a great issue to have in prison i'm sure to be germ phobic
2: i was well it, it served me actually
0: like when you found your mom with yeah. not like she a knife in her back. I I just like to ask a lot of questions. Did you pull the knife out? Yeah. Okay, so that's maybe they had fingerprints, right?
2: No, because uh of the type of handles apparently there weren't they couldn't uh get fingerprints, but I I did because So
0: fingerprints were never part of the evidence.
2: Um fingerprints were part of the evidence but not in relation to the knife. But he like
0: but he grew up there. Of course there's going to be know. fingerprints
1: in the house, right? Like
2: Right. Yeah, no, there were never... So, but The let's just to sort of like sum up the fingerprint situation. Um, fingerprints were never a part of their accusation. And in fact, were proof of my telling police the 100% truth. Because um, part of their theory that didn't work was that I had set up the scene after going over and freaking out and like losing it and killing my mom. But... There were no, there was but no, like, blood.
1: if you didn't freak out, wouldn't that be weirder if you're like, Hey, my no, mom's but there, dead but and there died. Was,
2: but there was no, yeah. But there, but there was no blood at the window that they claimed that I had set up. And so, well, okay. So that wouldn't work. Cause I had blood on my hands when the police arrived from giving first aid. And so if I had blood on my hands, I had blood on my hands and then took it off and set up the window and then got blood on my hands again. That doesn't make a fucking of sense. And so right, right, right. neither does their theory that I, that I went over and entered the house through that window thinking that she wasn't there, which was their other theory that doesn't work either. Because to get to that window, you have to pass the back garage door where there's a big fucking window and inside is her car. Why would I think she wasn't home? And I, I could break in and not get caught if I just walked past that window where her car's inside. So right. it's, it doesn't, so they, they don't have a working theory and all of the, f- f- uh, f- I'm like
1: pissed. I'm like pissed. I'm pissed. Yeah.
2: Well, it's not going to help.
1: It's not going to help you me being pissed right now. I'll tell you that. No, but
2: I mean, like, try, try having. So imagine yourself having all those responses, which are logical human responses, being pissed off that a cop is telling you this sitting across an interview room table while you're worried shitless about your mom who was taken off to a hospital and is, you know, God knows what condition and you're pissed and you're worried and you're in shock and you're on drugs like you are every day of your life. And fuck Mm -hmm. you know how 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 that points up on top of that i'm a juvenile which points up how we have to protect juveniles in those situations i mean i at one point like there's a law that like if you're a juvenile and you ask for your parent during an interrogation it's the same as asking for a lawyer they have to fucking stop and get that parent for you well, I said, when he was reading me my rights, he said, you have the right to an attorney. I said, my father, he rose his voice, elevated his voice and talked over me. And then, which told me like, psychologically speaking, what does it tell you? You're not supposed to be interrupting me. Shut up. And so I did. And I shut up. And then after he was done, do you want an attorney? I was like, no, I'll talk to you. Because you just told me I shouldn't ask for an attorney or my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, it, it's, I'm the do you, do you have nightmares? Do you have nightmares? Um, yeah, I mean, you no, know, the nightmares. Yeah. Sometimes if I, if I'm dealing with a, a, anything that makes me feel powerless, I'll probably have a prison nightmare, a prison dream that night, mm-hmm. just because my brain churns that way. And, and it's also, you know, as much as anything else, it's so that I will get to a place of going, okay, I'm not in prison. Right, right. sort of, you know, positive reinforcement.
1: Wow. Okay. So, let's talk about going into prison now. Okay. I'm assuming like, I'm assuming you were scared also, (laughs) right? Or you were like, (laughs) okay. I'm assuming you were like scared shitless. Yeah. Also, did it not put a target on your back that you're, I mean, I even watched like some documentary last night on prison. I watched a lot of them, but, um, it was saying like most people in there are like very poor or like different socioeconomic status. Like you're coming in, you're this white guy. Like you're coming from family of like lawyers. Were you not like an automatic target? Like this is a little fucker.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. So like as a primer for like, you know, kids, you know, white kids from the suburbs, it's probably not going to gain you any popularity to sort of like, you know, explain how dad's a lawyer and like you didn't be here and, and all of the, all the things that I was saying. And so, yeah, it does. It puts a little, it puts a target on you. And, and as a blessing, if you call it, I, I fell to juvenile hall and not, you know, adult jail or adult situations because um, it's a little bit more forgiving. There. There's more staff members the staff. The inmate ratio is higher. They're watching you closer, more closely. And, and so there was a lot, it was a much more protected kind of an environment than jail would have been. And so it was a little bit safer, but it was also not emotionally safe in any way because um, like the number one question is like when people look at you and you don't look like you belong, like, well, how come you're here? And you're like, I didn't, I'm, I didn't do mis- anything. It's a yeah, mistake. And they're like, well, what's a mistake? You know, oh. I'll, I'll, everything that like you as a naive person answered is like a prompt, to show how interesting a situation you are and people are fucking bored. Right. And so they like, they're trying to occupy their time by asking you questions and entertain themselves. And so they're like, you know, what's a mistake? Why well, I was arrested. Why are you? I didn't do it. What didn't you do? Murder, murder. Suddenly you're like really interesting. And they're like, who they say you murdered? And they're looking at this little kid under a hundred pounds. I-, I weighed less than a hundred pounds when I was arrested. I was like 97 pounds and they're like, well, who do they say you murdered? And I'm like, my mom, they're like your mom. And like, yeah. And probably
1: like, no one believes you. They're probably like, this guy's like, cause doesn't a lot of people go in and be like, I didn't do it.
2: Well, that's the thing. That's the thing is the whole brainwashing that everybody has, like, you know, everybody says that they're innocent and everybody doesn't in reality. But, um, As an aside, and we'll get to that if you want, but, Mm -hmm. but you know, so yeah, everybody, so they all assume that you're lying and staff assume that you're lying. And even if they don't assume that you're lying, they have to, they can't like not keep you in custody. It's their job to keep you in custody. And so, you know, it became, it's sort of apparent like why they would want to medicate me and shut me the hell up because every word out of my mouth to staff was like, I didn't do it. I'm going to call my dad. I didn't do it. I want to call my lawyer. I didn't do it. Can you get me out of here? Does I, that
1: make you, like, an annoying, like, entitled kid to them? Did they so think you were more annoying?
2: I'm sure it did. They acted as if that was the reaction. I mean, they really pretty quickly tired of me bothering them and asking that they do work and stuff. They wanted to kind of sit back and do their thing.
0: So how long were you in juvie for before they transferred you, and how long did the trial last?
2: So I was initially um, in Sylmar Juvenile Hall. I was there a month, and that's where they medicated me. And then they kidnapped me and put me in L.A. County Jail. I say kidnapped because legally speaking, that's what they did. Um, Put me in L.A. County Jail in the snitch tank. I was there for a couple months. Came back to Juvenile Hall on my birthday, my 18th birthday, ironically. And then I spent the better part of two and a half more years um, in that Juvenile Hall, East Lake Central Juvenile Hall, uh, right in the the shadow of uh, the uh, USC, County USC uh, Hospital, the opening shot from General Hospital. And then I left there early 1986 and bound for a youth authority after I was convicted and sentenced. So three years fighting the case. And then... um,
1: Also, were you coming off drugs? Like, did you have to, like, just, like, cold turkey come off drugs also while you're in there?
2: Well, you know, I was a pothead. I was experimenting. Everything else I was doing, I was experimenting with. But I was just, like, pot. And there's no real, like,
1: you know... Like, you weren't, like, addicted to heroin or something?
2: No. No, not at all.
1: Cause like that would also like add like to the pain
2: of (laughs) yeah yeah. Although the Mellor would you know probably help with that, but I don't know. But yeah, so yeah, three years. That that was so that was the first three years was like you know fighting the case injustice after injustice and the snitch the lying snitch and the setup and all that shit and the trial and then and where was your dad this whole time? He was he was on my side. He was in every single court in every single. Day that I had court, he was there. Um, And I think he missed like literally one court appearance and that was because he was really sick um, one time. But yeah, no, he was there every single time and uh, never like wavered, never left my side.
0: That must've been one silver lining, right? (laughs) You had anything to hold on to, knowing that someone believed you.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if he hadn't, I don't know, I don't know. Oh God. What would have happened? But yeah, he did. So
0: all right. So
1: this is just a random question to lighten things up for one minute.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just on top of my head. Is it heavy? Is it heavy in (laughs) here?
1: No, I'm kidding. No, but I mean, this topic is like just like heartbreaking. But this is always my question because I actually have someone I went to high school with who is supposed to be in prison for like 41 years or something like a really rich kid in my high school. I think I like mentioned it to you and I'm like, yeah. when he went in, we were on like the iPhone too. Like when you came out, like, were you like, what the fuck are I'm, these things? I'm like what laughing. phone were they on when you went in? Was there I'm not,
2: phones? I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing at, at your friend and his plate. Not at all. Um, but I'm laughing at the fact that we like, we peg like, Social what? evolution in terms of, like, iPhone version.
1: <laughs> my, my, I'm like, what version were we on back then? <laughs> like, you didn't even have a BlackBerry.
2: Oh, my God. I was in prison before MS-DOS. You don't even know what MS-DOS is. I don't even know so, what that is.
1: I'm like, no, like PEMDOS when you do math in school.
2: <laughs> no, like, before Windows, before the graphical user interfaces, was a command line, a C prompt. And that was, anyway... Um,
0: well, before both of us were born, that's for sure. I was born in 1990. <laughs> I was born in 87. So in 87, you were now at San 80, 90. You were in where? S- I was Quentin. in San Quentin. I was in San
2: Quentin in 1987.
1: Wait, San Quentin is like, according to my documentary, <laughs> is like the real deal. Yeah, it's pretty
2: real. Yeah, it was right now. It's a reception center. So like if you get convicted and sentenced, you go from county jail to San Quentin is one of a few reception places and they decide where you're going to go to do your time. But back then it was like a level four, hardcore, like, you know, people doing all day. They had death row there, still do. Um, Yeah, it was bananas. I arrived there and it was, it was, you could feel the vibe. You could feel what that place was about.
0: How long after you got there and maybe this never happened, but did you settle in and be like, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life?
2: um i never went i'm gonna be here for the rest of my life good because i think that if you completely abandon hope that you start to die you you Mm -hmm. start the death process in there and i was never gonna i was not gonna do that i wasn't gonna give up i was gonna go down swinging if i mean if the place took me and it took it consumed my entire life at least i'd go down like fighting doing legal work and you know being a rebel in that in that regard because fuck that
1: Okay. So we talk about phylogeny being something that you're born with, right? Like the idea that like you're born, you know, you need oxygen, you need food, whatever it is. But then ontogeny is things that are learned over your lifetime. So you obviously had to go through some operant conditioning, what we call it in terms of adapting. Like you are now in a new environment. You now need to survive in a new place. Like, what are some major, like, adaptation things that you had to do in prison? Which I, according to what I've been reading, it's actually called, what is it, prisonation or something? Prisonization?
2: Okay. Have you heard of that? Institutionalization? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you need to, yeah. So, like, you just have to look around. So, the wisest way to to serve time is to keep your mouth shut as often as possible, especially early on and your eyes and ears open. And you note behavior patterns. You note how people act. What does it look like? Who's getting in the least trouble? Who's getting in the most trouble? Tend, tends to be the people, the outliers, the biggest idiots or the most timid people who get into the most you know, problems in there. So like middle of the road is probably the safest way to be. You're not the toughest guy. You're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to be the, you know, and you're not trying to be the biggest victim. And so like middle of the road, became my, um, my like mantra, you know,
1: because it kind of seems like selectionism. Like we talk about it, like literally going back to, you know, like Darwin and survival, like you need to figure out which people are you going to hang with or put yourself around? Because like, I mean, one thing you do in there could now like really ruin the chance of you ever getting out.
2: Yeah. that's That's true. So the stakes are higher in a lot of ways. So you look at like, who looks like me? And literally, yes, including racist, you know, racial breakdowns. Because you you you're not a racist yourself, but you you can't go hang out with people who are going to get you in trouble. You know, you need to follow the rules. What's going on in there? You need to sort of go along as much as possible without without getting yourself in other types of you know. It's it's a tricky you know thing. It's a tricky. Like how does
1: it work in there? Let's say you did want to hang out with a different racial group. Like, is is that allowed? You're like, hey guys, I want to hang out. Is it like? A fuck no! Get the fuck out, you entitled asshole.
2: They they, they look at you like kind of crazy, like what you know. And they may, depending on who it is and depending on what they're about, they they might be like fuck you, you know. There's your people over there. What's the matter with you? First of all, if you if you were like I just want to hang out with like who I want to hang out with, especially if you're a brand new person, they might think you're either crazy or just naive, and so they might like try to pull you aside, educate you, and get a read on you. Is is she crazy? And, you know, you know, things sort out from there. I mean, usually the people who look like you, <laughs> you know, white people would, would come and go, Hey, you, you hang out over here. We don't do that. We don't do that. And you're like, okay. So you either, you know, go along with it or you decide that you want to start fighting all the people who are telling you, you know, how things are inside and it's easier to just kind of go sit with those people. So you're not a racist, but you have to go sit with your own race. Whatever, yeah. it's just the
1: way it works inside these. It's, just, it's just
2: the way it works in there, you know. And you and you do have to kind of swallow your pride a little bit. You have to, you know, weigh it. You have to weigh it. You know, do I want to? And maybe one day you want to say. Maybe some person wants to say, and some people do. They want to say, "Fuck that!" I don't. I want to hang out with you. I want to hang out with them. They go and do that. It's probably going to get you into a bit of a, a pickle later on, but whatever. And they do that, and they. But it's a choice.
1: But joy. it seems like almost like a protection thing to have like a group that you have some kind of. Yeah. You
2: yeah. You be on your own. You don't want to be on your own. And what it does, if you go against some of the, the generalized sort of, you know, established norms uh, is that you become an outlier. You become like this, you know, force of one and you're on your own, you know, and you're, and that's not a good place to be. You don't, there's strength in numbers. you want to have a group
0: did you make any friends that like that you trusted that you would consider friends today good question
2: Yep. absolutely absolutely yeah
0: are they still in or are they out
2: Yep. yep i have a friend um just you know for his own attempts at parole and 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 everything and and uh because he's he's a good guy i don't want to mention his name but he's been uh what is it, hon? Approaching 50 years or 40? 40, just about 40, just over 40 years he's been in. And um, he was at San Quentin when I arrived there. And I got into the computer class. There was a computer programming class. Uh, and he was in that class. And smart guy, really smart guy. Great head on his shoulders, great heart. And he pulled me aside and, and told me, what to expect there at San Quentin and in in prison as a whole and is a big part of the reason uh, from the inside that I did as well as I did in there. You had your guy. Passed on a lot of of wisdom. And yep. Yep. And he's a friend to this day. I love him.
1: All right, guys. So what I want to get into next is prison life. But we know we've had you for an hour here already and we want to keep you wanting more. So... Tune in to our next episode and you could hear all about prison life and the entire, I mean, it is another world inside of prisons. And I have so many behavioral questions and different things I want to ask about. So we'll definitely discuss that on our next episode.
0: To leave you guys hanging with a little quote that I found from Bruce. I was 44 years old when I took my first steps on free soil after being imprisoned as a scared and innocent child. So now what? Right? So we're going to get into that a lot in the next episode as well. What is he doing now? How is life after getting out? What is he up to? And um, so much more.
1: So definitely tune in. You know where to find us. Leave us a five-star review on Behavior Bitches Podcast on Apple Podcast. Find us on behaviorbitches.com. Instagram, at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Facebook, at Behavior Bitches Podcast. As always, love you. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us, and starting your own podcast, there is a way
0: you can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast, who helped us get started. He records our shows, he posts them, he adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your
1: office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good.
0: Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have
1: some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today.